Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I have on Joe Lalu, the founder of Bison Trails and head of Coinbase Cloud. Joe's a good friend and is someone whose work in crypto I've been following for many years. He has had a long journey, has been involved in a few different projects and ecosystems in crypto, but I think spent a particularly large amount of time on the staking industry. In 2017, he founded a company called Bison Trails, which became one of the leading staking infrastructure providers, which in early 2020, he got acquired by Coinbase, and he's now the head of Coinbase Cloud. So I think in this podcast, we'll cover a wide variety of topics from the staking industry and some of his work at Coinbase Cloud, but also on the micro level. Joe, as a former founder, has a lot of lessons for other founders building similar products and going through the M&A process. And I'm really excited to bring him on today. So without further ado, welcome, Joe. Hey, everyone. Hey, Derek. Super excited to be here. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Really excited for the conversation and think this should be a really fun one. Absolutely. So to kick things off, I think people are familiar with Coinbase Cloud today. And a lot of our listeners are probably users or partners of some kind, whether they work at protocols or, or funds or other startups. But I don't think many people know a lot about Bison Trails, especially the early days. So could you talk a little bit about the early days of Bison Trails, specifically like how you even arrived on the decision to build it and how'd you settled on the idea? Yeah, this is a fun one. You know, I think you're right. I think, well, I hope, my hope is that today more and more folks know about Coinbase Cloud as we've been, you know, building out this developer platform and suite of infrastructure services and Web3 APIs and SDKs. I think more and more developers will know about it and then more people will know, know about it. But for now, I think like the origin story from Bison Trails into Coinbase Cloud is is an interesting one. And I'm super happy to share kind of how we went from exploration, and I use that word very deliberately, to you know building a company that was designed to help the entire crypto space. So the story kind of starts with my co-founder, Aaron, and I both being pretty big nerds, generally speaking, and having some exposure through our cohort of friends to crypto and, and mostly Bitcoin. And I say mostly Bitcoin, not because of any choices, because it truly was like kind of the only real <laughs> crypto project that existed at the time. So if you were interested in Web3 or crypto, well, if you're interested in crypto, because I don't think anybody was calling <laughs> Web3 at the time, the only thing you were really going to get introduced to was Bitcoin. So, you know, we were introduced to Bitcoin from some of our other nerdy friends and, you know, we're actually using Bitcoin, which was kind of cool. And as a longtime entrepreneur, well, both of us as longtime entrepreneurs, we, we were sort of on this a part of our journey where we're trying to figure out what was next. What did we want to work on next? What did we care about? Where did we think the world was going? And this experience of using crypto and engaging with crypto both aligned with a lot of our interests and values, but also sort of made us think of this world in the future, this permissionless world or trustless world in the future where you could create these public goods that were you know, owned and operated entirely by the people. And we were kind of you know, fundamentally very interested in it. So getting to the meat of the story, like how did we actually build <laughs> Bison Trails, there's a point to why we were introduced to Bitcoin matters, is because one of the first projects, and this is really kind of part of our personalities as founders, is we like to dig 
really, really deep. So if we, we are interested in something, we kind of go exploratory really deep into the thing that we're interested in. And so one of the first projects we did working in crypto is we actually started building a few different pieces of software. And also we built a Bitcoin mine, relatively small Bitcoin mine. So, you know, I don't know, sometimes I feel like people think Bitcoin mine, they think like these massive, massive data centers, but wasn't tiny, but wasn't giant. And the whole purpose there was really to truly start to understand how the technology worked, how the network worked. What were the nuances of using this technology? Where were the, you know, some of the gaps in usability? Where were, you know, how could we get as well educated as we possibly could on this thing that we thought was really cool and thought was the future and really, you know, wanted to confirm our own beliefs that it could be, you know, an influential technology of the future. And so that was, that was one of the first things we did. The reason why it's relevant to the origin story was as we became experts in the block production and block production space, we started thinking a lot about where that would go. And you know, at this time, some new protocols like Ethereum, for instance, were <laughs> sort of starting to gain some traction. And we were having a lot of conversations around what does the future of block production, what is the future of ledger propagation and validation? I mean, no one was really using that word at the time, but what does it look like? And I think that's where we became really, really interested and proof of stake and staking and had this thesis that most, not all, but most blockchains were probably, especially ones that were designed to run applications, were going to move to a different type of consensus mechanism from proof of work like Bitcoin was using. And that was kind of the origin of Bison Trails. Just to double click on that last point, walk me back to 2017 when you guys were doing this Bitcoin mine and thinking about the future of block production, like what was the industry view on staking at the time? It sounds like you didn't have a great experience with the mine. Why did you think that mining was not sustainable? It's funny. We didn't not have, <laughs> I hate the double negative. We actually had a great experience with the mine. It's not that we didn't have a good experience with the mine because we did. And a fun fact is that it still is up and running and <laughs> still, still working which is quite cool. I think the the thought process was more that the way that block production was happening on Bitcoin was, you know, through these highly specialized ASICs that were designed specifically to solve, I don't want to get into like the <laughs> how <laughs> the hashing algorithm in Bitcoin works, but basically it's designed to play like a giant game of guess and check as quickly as possible, but you couldn't really use them for anything else. And so, you know, as we took a step back and thought to ourselves like, okay, what we have seen is that the community and individuals care enough about this, that they're interested in participating in the network. And by participating, I mean like anyone could, in theory, anyone could buy an ASIC and plug it in or buy a Bitcoin miner and plug it in and, you know, help power and secure the network. So that, that thesis, you know, kind of stuck with us. We were like, okay, this is interesting. People will do this. However, there was some limitations to what you could do with that machine. And so we started thinking about what would the future look like? And we started thinking about like, well, if you could use more generic hardware with really great software written on it to help secure the network, you can A, garner a lot more participation, but B, do different things. Instead of just playing a giant game of guess and check, you could probably do break up different portions or different pieces of what is going to happen on a blockchain or on a ledger or on a protocol and make them a little bit more advanced. And at the time, it's funny because like looking back, I mean, today you're like, if you're familiar with the 
with the crypto space, you're like, well, yeah, that's so obvious. Look at what's happening now. We're seeing it all over the place <laughs> with new protocols breaking up different portions of the protocol itself or you know, the execution layer and, and the data layer, or we're seeing like rollups and a ton of technology being built on top of these chains. And at the time, that was not the case. So <laughs> you, I kind of chuckled a little bit before because you said like, walk me back to 2017 and what did people think of staking? And, and the truth is that no one believed it was real <laughs> or that it would be real. And at the time, it was a pretty contrarian, rel I mean, I don't, I don't say pretty, it was relatively contrarian point or opinion to hold. So we would, you know, go and talk to folks in the crypto space and say like, hey, we actually think the future of crypto is not necessarily abandoning proof of work, but was going to be predominantly proof of stake. And that was a, you know, a thesis that we held. And at least in, you know, point in time today, that is showing to be true. And I, I don't mean by, you know, you can measure that by value, but I just mean by the number of new protocols that are coming out are generally opting away from proof of work. And so the mine was a, a really great learning experience for us to understand like the nuances of how a protocol works, but it also allowed us to develop this thesis and this opinion on why modern blockchains weren't necessarily going to use proof of work as a consensus mechanism. So it was, you know, at the time it was, I like to joke, like I would tell people like, Hey, proof of stake is the future. And you know, half the time I get laughed out of the room <laughs> and the other half of the time people are like, well, why do you think that? And I'd, you know, go through and kind of explain what I just explained to you. <laughs> and so it was definitely an interesting time to be building, building a platform to support proof of stake. So you and Aaron have this thesis that proof of stake is going to be massive in the future. And there's probably some ideas around it. There, there could even be a company. Walk me through the journey of, of figuring out, of like tinkering with staking and, and learning about it. And, and eventually, like, how did you settle on the final model for Bison Trails? Yeah. So I walked you through kind of like why we believed proof of stake was going to be the future. Obviously, the next step is like, how do you go from that to, hey, I built a company? How we built an infrastructure company. And again, like looking back, it feels a little bit more linear or it feels a little bit more like the story is connected, but most founder stories aren't really that connected. The truth is, is that we held a thesis, but we didn't really know how that was going to manifest. And we started doing some experimentation in the space. So because we thought proof of stake was interesting, we started engaging on a few different protocols that were really early in staking. At the time, most notably, I think there was Tezos. And the Cosmos ecosystem, Cosmos had just, I don't think it had launched Game of Stakes yet, which was the sort of incentivized testnet that they were deploying to get folks to you know, run validation nodes on this newly launched Cosmos hub. And so we just, we kind of leaned in, we started, we jumped into the ecosystem's chats and started kind of talking to the different people that were building these protocols. There were a few other ones that were doing different versions of this. It's, it's so funny. I think back to some of the different networks that we were kind of looking at and talking to. There was this one, I don't even, I'm not even sure if the team still exists, but there's this one protocol called Loki that was doing like this like hybrid model where they had these things called service nodes. And the idea is you could like run applications on these service nodes independent of consensus. And I mean, so we started designing and deploying node clusters that would run, you know, and exist on these chains and help produce blocks, validate blocks and secure those blocks. And, and in doing that, we realized this is actually a little bit harder than it sounds, <laughs> you know? So the big change was this was no longer ASICs. So you didn't need to go and like buy specialized hardware. You could essentially use a computer you had at home, or in our case, we were mostly experimenting using different cloud platforms. 
like AWS or GCP or Azure, because we, we could use these, these virtualized machines to do this. We started designing these systems to be able to easily deploy nodes onto these different networks as we started working with more and more different protocols and, and realized, okay, so if we want to expand our thesis, like, hey, people want to be able to participate in these networks, how can we make it much easier for them? <laughs> and that was kind of the genesis of the company and the platform itself. So it was less about, hey, let's start a company. It was more like we started tinkering. <laughs> we started working on it ourselves and then started building software to solve our own problems. There was kind of two parts to that. The first was we, again, believed that proof of stake was going to be the future. So we wanted to make it really easy for folks, whether they were, you know, had you know, tremendous engineering backgrounds or not to be able to easily deploy hyper secure, highly performant nodes on these networks for block production, but also started talking to other folks in crypto and realizing that participating in any chain, whether it was for block production or not, was actually quite difficult as well. So, you know, I would talk to a founder building, let's say like a wallet. I mean, truly just like a simple Ethereum wallet. And I'd ask them about like their engineering team. What are they spending their time on? What are their challenges? And you know, a lot of times they'd say like, hey, like 25%, 30% of our time is spent on, you know, deploying nodes, managing these nodes on these networks because the network is ever-changing, you know, it's being upgraded because it's a these peer-to-peer -peer networks, their connections were hard to maintain, it was hard to make sure you were at the head of the chain. And so to build a reliable application on top of it became quite difficult. I, I kind of likened it to if you were trying to build play a game of like Jenga on top of like a waterbed, right? Like you want to build like a really firm structure, but the underlying base was moving a lot and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just changing pretty regularly. And so, you know, we said, okay, there's something here. Like we can definitely make it so that teams don't have to spend all that time making sure that the foundations they were building on top of were super solid. And that was, that was the light bulb moment. That was kind of like, okay, there's a company here. Let's build an infrastructure platform that makes it so that whether you're technical or not, you can go click a few buttons and have access to these nodes that are either you know producing blocks, validating blocks, or enabling you to connect to a blockchain and read and write from that chain. And so it was really just taking something that was kind of hard for a lot of folks, whether you're technical or not, and trying to make it easier. Has the overall level of complexity and difficulty in self-hosting and, and running your own nodes, has that increased? in terms of existing networks and new networks? Or has it gotten easier as, as folks better understand the needs of the user? Yeah, it's actually a great question because the answer is both. And this, this shouldn't be too surprising, right? Because what has happened is that as the crypto ecosystem has grown, we're seeing more and more protocols getting designed and built. And, and you know, even today, we're still seeing new L1s being built and deployed. So there's that. At the same time, there's more experience in you know, self-hosting or deploying and running reliable infrastructure on these networks, but the networks are getting more and more complicated. So you're actually kind of seeing both things happen at the exact same time. On one side, the protocols are getting more complicated. And on the other side, we're seeing more and more experience and even, you know, more companies being built in the space to help solve a similar problem. And so we were really early in helping solve this problem, I, you know, I don't want to say, I hate saying things like we were the first because who knows, I don't know what other people were working at the same time, but today there's certainly a number of companies that are doing things like validators as a service or staking as a service. And similarly, like hosted nodes as a service across a whole variety of different chains. And this is kind of like where, you know, getting back to the journey, 
as we continued to explore our thesis around proof of stake, we started to believe pretty firmly that the future of, of crypto and Web3 was going to be a multi-chain world. So we were going to see applications that are built using different portions of different protocols or different chains for different reasons. And for that to be true, you needed to have really simple interconnectivity. And so it kind of strengthened our thesis that having a platform where you could go and easily deploy a Ethereum node or eventually a Solana node and be able to connect to both of these networks for different reasons at the same time or very easily without having to manage it was going to be more complex for a developer or for a user, but more valuable for the entire ecosystem at the same time. So if I think about Bison Trills in the early days, like you guys are really building a marketplace and your customers are are primarily folks interested in running validators and nodes, but really you guys are also serving the networks themselves because every network that has validators that has staking, they want the best validator set and they want healthy, robust node infrastructure. They want to obviously make sure the network has uptime and, and for all of that to happen, there needs to be reliability and there needs to be really good and smart people operating these networks. So how did that feel sort of sitting in between the user and, and the networks and how did you go about building the relationships? Like, did you find it more important to build strong relationships with the, the large token holders and the funds that wanted to actually run a validator? Or, or did you like go to the networks first and become a trusted advisor to them? And, and, and sort of that was more helpful. Like, curious what you found was, was the more powerful draw. It was an interesting place to be in at the time because you put it correctly in that, you know, we found ourselves between two parties, right? <laughs> so the protocols on one hand really wanted robust infrastructure like you're describing. And then there was folks that wanted to participate in the network. And again, we knew that to be true. We sort of knew both to be true. Being that we were very technical, very technical team, and we wanted to help build the future that we wanted to see, we leaned in pretty heavily into getting to know the protocol teams and the folks that were building the different protocols. And this wasn't because we necessarily believed that, you know, one direction or the other was more important. It was more that we thought we could be the most helpful that way. And so our approach was less about like, how do we commercialize what we're building as quickly as possible? And more, how could we build as much goodwill as we possibly could in the ecosystem? And it was not without its challenges because on one hand, the protocols we were working with certainly wanted you know, folks to be able to run validators on each of these networks. But on the other hand, they wanted to make sure that there was lots of people being able to do that and they didn't want to have like a centralization point or a choke point in their network. And so we were very active and as transparent as we possibly could be with the different protocol foundations and the rest of the market on how active we were how much of a protocol or how much stake on a protocol was going through our platform because we wanted to be super cognizant that we weren't also at the same time while making it easier to run a validator on each of these networks posing a threat to the security model of the network itself and so you know without getting into like the deep technicals of proof of stake you generally don't want to have any single party running more than like 30 percent of the network or because you can halt the network and then you know at 60 percent of the network you actually pose a serious threat to the security model. So we were always pretty open with the fact that we did not want to run more than 30% of any network at the, obviously at the very, very high end. I'm not saying that we do run 30% of the network, but 
of any particular network. But so it was a bit tricky because on one hand, you know, the protocol teams really liked us because we were helping them in the earliest phases with like their test nets and helping them. In some cases, we would help like deploy these large test nets to be able to test out the protocol before it went live or went to mainnet. And then once they went to mainnet, we were able to get lots of folks validating and staking right away, which is which was really great. But on the other hand, we wanted to make sure that we weren't the only ones doing it. And so what was cool is that we actually, at the same time, spent time sort of telling the story of proof of stake and building a narrative and encouraging other companies and other teams to participate in helping them out. So, you know, it was a very collaborative early phase, I think, in the ecosystem. And again, like, you know, I mentioned before, today, you have plenty of independent companies that are running validators that are doing staking as a service or you know, you have, you have teams like Lido that have taken a, a different approach to pooled staking. And we've seen like a an evolution of the ecosystem in, in a really, really interesting way. I think that's been super cool to see from the early, like humble beginnings. Love that explanation. And I think validators definitely are a pretty unique entity type in in crypto. Like even today, you obviously have your staking as a service companies, you have your venture backs, herbs, but you also have your sort of grassroots individual solo staker validators that may not have a, a huge amount of stake, might not run a ton of networks, but are deeply involved in a few and, and really feel like an extension of the core team in a lot of ways. They'll help with like node upgrades, they'll help with critical fixes and, and exploits, they'll help with community facing things. So it's definitely a pretty unique dynamic. And, and I think the validators that can become the the closest advisors and and friends and team members to, to the core teams, like it really does provide a, a lot of value. Like I can't say how many network founders and, and teams, I feel like they have so much gratitude and, and they just work so closely with a lot of these validators. And it's definitely an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly collaborative, right? It's at its core, it's kind of a really nice manifestation of what people believe, you know, Web3 and crypto to be, which is like having lots of different groups or different parties come together with the right incentives and work together to build something that's kind of bigger than any one of them independently. And from the early stages, it's hard to get that started. It's hard to bootstrap that. And so, you know, getting back to your original question, like we were definitely engaged with the protocol teams the closest because well, being able to like deploy and launch these networks from the earliest phases there sort of is no, you said we, we built a marketplace and we never really described it as a marketplace, even though it is technically <laughs> a marketplace. We, you know, we were talking about it more as like an infra platform, but you know, without the, the sort of supply side of the marketplace, there wasn't really a need for the, <laughs> for the demand side. And so it made a lot of sense for us to lean into the protocol side and make sure that these protocols could exist to then help power staking on them. Totally makes sense. So let's zoom ahead in the in the story a little bit for listeners. So Bison Trails ended up raising a seed round in 2018. They raised a, a Series A in, in 2019. And around this time, staking began to, to become much more popular. Many more chains were, were launching and, and a lot more folks were hearing about Bison Trails and becoming customers. And I would say overall, there was just a lot of momentum in I believe it was early 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, you guys were acquired by Coinbase and eventually became Coinbase Cloud. But like, just curious, what did that M&A process look like? 
what do you think made Bison Trails an, an interest attractive company for someone like Coinbase? Totally. So minor, minor correction. It was actually the beginning of 2021 that we joined Coinbase. I'm trying to Got think it. back. I'm like losing, <laughs> losing, losing track of, <laughs> of dates. While we started our conversations, some conversations with Coinbase in 2020, we actually officially joined Coinbase at the beginning of 2021. The story there is, is relatively organic, actually. And I feel like that comes as a surprise to folks because when we built Bison Trails, we weren't building the company for any kind of M&A transaction. We weren't building it to sell it, right? We weren't, we weren't really thinking about it in that way. We were really just trying to be as impactful as we could around this thesis that we had for crypto. And so the process was, I guess, like not the tactical process, but the thought process was we got to know Coinbase as a customer first. So you know, there's plenty of folks that were using Bison Trails and we were, you know, leading the space in terms of running validators on proof of stake networks and got to know Coinbase and got to know that team as customers. And so they were, they were using our platform in various ways and we got to know the team well, and I got to know the leadership team over there. And we started to talk a little bit about our vision for the future with developers, how we thought that this core piece of technology the ability to like deploy nodes at the underlying level, you know, really like the core level was going to be incredibly important to builders in the space. And so it kind of followed this thought pattern of the more folks you have building in crypto, the bigger and more widespread crypto is as a whole. So you can get them to build more reliable applications. You can get them to build new pieces of tech in the stack that make crypto better as a whole. And what we realized was that there was this opportunity to sort of create, you know, one plus one equals three by joining Coinbase. And this was because, you know, Coinbase at the time was obviously one of the biggest crypto companies and they were, you know, experimenting with a whole bunch of different businesses. And in getting to know them, we realized like, hey, there's a real opportunity here for us to work much closer together and accelerate our timeline, accelerate what we're working on at Bison Trails. And at the same time, work really closely with you know one of the the biggest companies in the space. And so obviously there's there's always challenges in bringing two companies together. But we thought that the benefit of doing it well would outweigh the risks of of some of those challenges. And so that was kind of the, the thought process behind joining forces and we're really excited about it and still obviously very excited about it. We've done some really cool stuff since joining Coinbase and, and that's been quite cool and you know kind of expanded out into building out this more holistic developer platform with a whole bunch of different dev tools and we're continuing to expand in that, which is quite cool. And then the second part of the question was kind of like, what stood out about uh, Bison Trails compared to other folks? And on one hand, I, you know, I obviously don't know the inner workings at the time of Coinbase because I wasn't a part of Coinbase, but I think that, you know, a lot of the conversations we had were sort of around the fundamentals that I was describing before, which was we were a very technical team. We were working really closely with the different communities and the different ecosystems and we were solving a really hard technical challenge and, and doing it well. And, you know, you mentioned the word, you said the word momentum. And I think like, that's an important part of the story. As we were doing a good job with our platform, we were garnering a lot more support from the, the protocols. We were, you know, signing new customers. And I think we were sort of showcasing that we had built some of the best tech in the ecosystem to be able to do what we were doing. And so I think, you know, bringing those two things together is kind of what really made the joining of the two companies together, an interesting opportunity for both of us. And I guess we're 
you know, almost, it's been almost two years since we joined Coinbase and it's been pretty amazing to see all of the different products that we've built and enhanced and um, iterated on in this time frame. And so you kind of look back and you say like, oh, wow, we kind of said we were going to do all these different things and we started doing them, which is pretty great. And, you know, the idea here is to make the entire ecosystem stronger, to make it easier for people to participate in networks, make it easier for developers to build on these networks and all in service of making the crypto ecosystem better. Really great story. And must have been an interesting conversation when, when someone like a Coinbase approaches you with, with the intention of partnering and, and working together closely. If another founder came to you in a similar position today, like let's say they just raised their Series A or Series B or, or whatever, and they have other companies looking to partner or maybe buy them, like what advice do you wish you could give yourself back then? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I think the most important thing that I would tell, and I actually do, I do some angel investing myself and work with plenty of founders kind of in the early phases of building companies. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I give folks is you shouldn't be building a company for an exit. And this is true, whether it's an M&A exit or it's an IPO or it's, you know, whatever it is. I think the most important thing you should be doing is focusing on solving a really hard problem. And if you do that really well, most of the other pieces should fall into place. And so if you take your time and energy and you focus it on solving really, really hard problems, and then you know getting that out in the market and getting people to use it and creating champions of whatever product you're building, that's how you continue to grow. And, and I think the growth trajectory is the most important thing that you should be focusing on as a founder. And so it's not so much that I wouldn't give myself that advice because I feel like my co-founder and I kind of had that approach and we were way more focused on you know building the best company we could with the best tech that we could at the time and less about like you know what happens in the next year and more like what are we trying to achieve over the next decade and that you know kind of getting back to joining coinbase like that hasn't really changed from the beginning we were like let's build this infrastructure platform to make it easier to deploy nodes across all these different protocols and we've continued to do that we were doing that independently and then we continue to do that as part of coinbase and so Again, I think like just getting back to it, the advice I would give founders is like, don't actually spend, don't spend too much time thinking about it. Spend a lot of time and effort building like the best product, the best technology you can. And, you know, getting that product in the hands of the people that are using it, whether they're consumers or developers or institutions, that's where you should be spending your time and energy. I don't think many listeners or really folks in general, like understand what it's like to, to be acquired by, by another company. So just Curious if you could walk me through just sort of what that journey was like from a high level and let's say like just how long it took, like what the process was like, what the integrations looked like. Like, is there anything you could share? I could probably share a little bit, <laughs> bits, bits and pieces. So a fun fact about myself and my co-founder Aaron is we've actually, we built another startup many years back and also went through another M&A transaction back in 2014 where our last company was bought by this company called Etsy, which is like a, an online marketplace. And so we had some experience in working with essentially being like a smaller company joining a bigger company. And the way I would describe it is it's not all that dissimilar from designing and developing like a really strong partnership. And I think that's the most important thing that founders or really anybody, whether you're on the acquirer or the acquiree side, the most important thing for folks to know is that for it to work, it needs to be like a great partnership. So 
people always ask like how long I've actually been asked this question a number of times, maybe not on a podcast, but <laughs> in conversations, they'd say like, you know, how long it was the process and what did it look like? And it's a lot more organic than it is calculated. I think for some of the best M&A transactions in that I mentioned before, like we got to know the team at Coinbase as a customer. Coinbase Ventures was actually an investor in the company as well, relatively early on, I believe. I believe they invested in our Series A. And so, you know, we got to know different portions of the company and the conversation truly started as like, hey, what would it look like if we joined forces? It wasn't, you know, hey, we want to buy you or us going like, hey, we'd like to sell the company. It was actually like a lot more organic. Like what if we worked closer together? What would working closer together look like? And we spent a lot of time designing that. We spent a lot of time working with the team at Coinbase, trying to figure out how could we work together? How could we build something that was more impactful as a team together than we could do independently? And so I like to say like the process was, you know, multi-years, right? Because the first conversation we had with the team at Coinbase was, you know, years before we actually joined Coinbase. And it was an evolution of that conversation. Because you want to make sure that you can work really well together. I, you know, I would say that if the relationship with Coinbase did not work well as a customer or as an investor or as a you know collaborator, it probably wouldn't have worked well as an M and A transaction. And so, people look at the acquisition and they say like, "Oh, that's the thing that happened." But actually, what happened was we developed a really great relationship and partnership with another group of people and decided that it would make sense for us to join forces. It's kind of like if you go. And you know, you're trying to hire somebody, right? You want to get to know them first. You want to understand how they work. You want to understand the stuff that they've done in the past. And then you kind of, you know, it helps if you can maybe do like some kind of a trial period or figure out if it makes sense to work together before you jump in full time. And obviously not every relationship works that way, but I think the ones that are the most successful do have this almost like this incubation period of like getting to know both both sides and making sure that we have the same values, we have the same beliefs, we have the same vision of the future. And, and that was that was the sort of, I think the like real strong moment for me was as I got to know the leadership team at Coinbase, I realized we saw a very similar future in crypto and in Web3. And there was a lot of belief that we wanted to build towards that same future. And so I feel like the 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 sort of tactical points of it, of the actual transaction are actually not that interesting. You know, it ends up being just a lot of kind of back and forth conversations about how it'll work and why it'll work that way and what will we work on and, you know, like all the all the different pieces and kind of laying it out and trying to be really open and communicative about our plans and our roadmap and their roadmap. And yeah, and, and it all sort of culminates with, with an M&A transaction, but really like the whole process was multi-year long. Totally makes sense. Okay. So you guys have been at Coinbase now for, as you said, almost two years. And I'm sure it's been a, a very interesting journey. And it's been almost, I think, over five years since since you first started Bison Trails with Aaron. Like, the staking landscape has changed a ton. Proof of stake has gone from something a few networks have are doing to some of the largest networks in crypto. Ethereum finally is running entirely on proof of stake. Back in 2017, I remember people would make jokes and, and Bitcoiners would meme about Casper and, and Itsu never launching, but but we are finally here. Curious, like what you see, like how do you feel about how staking has evolved? Like what do you see as some of the most critical differences compared to, let's say, two or three years ago? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mentioned this briefly before, but I think what's been really interesting to me is 
is that the staking landscape or the ecosystem has grown tremendously over the last few years and, and very quickly, right? So, you know, what started off as, like you said, like a sort of fringe conversation and, you know, a bit of sometimes at points, a meme conversation has grown into, you know, a very real, very live, <laughs> very active conversation. And, and so, you know, the couple things that I think are very cool is one, we're seeing, you know, we've seen an entire industry built around proof of stake for starters. And that's everything from, you know, liquid staking protocols to staking as a service to infrastructure providers. And then we've seen the ecosystem leverage that industry to, you know, create new innovations. And so we're seeing some like, you know, interesting stuff with what the Flashbots team is doing or, or you know, the different teams are doing with like MEV. We're seeing some really interesting new middleware being built, designed and built to sort of further the value that staking can bring to each of the different ecosystems. I don't want to get into like the details of any specific protocol right now, but I think that we're going to continue to see more and more innovation from both the L1s and what's happening on these different L1s to different L2s. And sort of as you move up the stack, this highly specialized division of labor in these different protocols I think is what's most interesting because what it does is it allows the protocols and the operators to be more efficient. And so you can have, you know, a team that's really focused on, you know, solving one specific problem in staking or working on, you know, one specific problem in a protocol ecosystem. And we're kind of seeing that come to fruition, which is kind of neat. What started as like, all right, how do we get the core or like the baseline going has turned into like, this is, you know, the baseline is a very interesting industry to start with. And now we're starting to see folks up the stack build new technology that is leveraging the sort of robustness of the core that's been built. That's been quite cool. I always hate like giving predictions because <laughs> I think, especially in crypto, everything changes so quickly. But I think we're going to continue to see the ecosystem grow and expand and people try and build new tech that leverages these different proof of stake protocols and leverages even staking mechanisms. So there's some talk on, on you know, the concept of restaking and how can you build application specific tech on top of a protocol that uses staking, you know, at its base and think of ways you could introduce potentially like new slashing parameters for operating in a certain way. And so there's some, some really interesting stuff that's happening in the space right now. Definitely. feels like there's been a, a ton of innovation, obviously starting with stuff like liquid staking and we're now seeing yeah, a ton more, I think, specialization and knowledgeable teams, both building like specific pieces of that in, in terms of liquid staking, but, but completely new approaches as well. So definitely will be an interesting few years going forward. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it's like, that's all, that's all possible because we are able to originally build and deploy these networks, show that staking, you know, proof of stake works, and then enable teams to then build on top of it. I think liquid staking is, is probably sort of a broad enough topic to double click a bit on. And I think obviously on Ethereum, Blido has, has had a lot of success. Other chains have, have their own winners as well. But what are your views generally? How do you think this space will will evolve over the, the coming years? Yeah. So one of my favorite parts about the you know Web3 space is the rapid pace of innovation and, you know, trial and error. And obviously over the last few years, we've seen 
both the benefits and the pitfalls of that rapid pace of innovation, both in really great new tech that's been built, and then also obviously some some mistakes that have been made along the way. But I'm a big proponent for liquid staking. I think it brought something new to the table that folks had thought about, but like maybe hadn't been able to execute on. The idea is like really about enabling anybody to participate, whether they had enough stake to lock up, you know, because different protocols have different mechanisms for engaging in proof of stake. So, you know, for instance, like on Ethereum, if you wanted to stake on Ethereum or run a validator on Ethereum, you need a you know minimum amount of Ethereum to do that. And that actually ends up being a barrier to entry. So protocols like liquid staking protocols make it so that you can participate without having to necessarily meet that minimum bar or minimum barrier of entry. It's not without its drawbacks or similarly, like, you know, you want to be able to stake, but you're concerned about liquidity and some protocols have like an unbonding period. So if you like staked and then wanted to no longer stake, you'd have to wait, you know, 20 days or 30 days or something like that. It's actually a number of blocks, but whatever, the equivalent of like 20 days or 30 days. And so what I'm really liking is the experimentation. I'm really liking, let's try a whole bunch of different things to see what makes sense for the market. I still think that, I think we're still in the, you know, maybe mature experimentation phase. I don't think we're in the like, this all works perfectly and we know it works perfectly phase yet. I think like we're beyond like, hey, let's just try it. (laughs) And so I'm incredibly optimistic on the future of liquid staking, but I still think there's a lot of the nuances that are, you know, yet to be seen. The drawbacks of removing an unbonding period from folks that are staking or helping secure network is still, you know, a little bit unclear. A lot of folks participate in staking because there's an element of rewards associated with staking those assets. As you lock up an asset, how do the different you know yield values relate to each other and the risk associated with those yield values come into play at scale? I think is still, you know, we're seeing it work, but I'm not 100% sure we know exactly how that's going to play out long term. And so I think it's great. I guess like to summarize, I think it's very cool that we're seeing new ways to engage in staking because I think it, it encourages more participation and more participation is great for the ecosystem and that's what we want. But I still think that there are elements of the different experiments that present some unknowns that we, we don't know exactly how they're going to play out. Yeah, I definitely agree. It doesn't seem like we're anywhere near the final end state equilibrium of, of the liquid staking market. I think, again, Ethereum is probably the furthest along in this vertical and the merge only just happened. So it'll probably be another few years and before we we begin to see what an end state could look like. Yeah, I think that's right. And even actually, it's funny, like I said this, but like even the the term end state is a bit misleading because the thing about crypto is that it's always changing. (laughs) And so as new tech gets built, new opportunities arise, the ecosystem, the users are sort of shifting to different places, like what's interesting to them, what is interesting for the end users themselves or for builders in the space. And so uh, we're going to continue to see things shift, I think. Definitely agreed. Another important topic is MEV. And since the merge, it feels like I see MEV everywhere from multiple perspectives, searchers, validators, users, people are researching ways to mitigate bad MEV while increasing good MEV. There's research on, on increasing revenues for validators, token holders, the protocols themselves. Like, I think there's so many things we could talk about, but we don't have that much time. Like, so maybe my question would be like, what are your general thoughts on MEV? Yeah, I think that unfortunately, my answer here is kind of similar to 
the last question, which is, I think what all the conversation and research around MEV has done was is brought you know a new a new industry and a new form of experimentation and proof of stake. And I think we're very much still in the early phases there. I think what we've seen is there's clearly some interest and demand in and around MEV. And I think that that's not going to change. And so I think what's happening now is that folks are exploring and experimenting with different ways to engage, trying to understand what are the, you know, the benefits or the drawbacks of engaging in MEV. And so I still think it's just early. I think it's really, really early on that front. And we're going to continue to see a whole bunch of different experimentation and different solutions come out. And, and similarly, you'll see folks kind of circle around what is you know, the best way to engage in these different protocols in, in, in this fashion. And so you know, I think what's really exciting to me is that like some of the smartest people in the space are researching and working on this. And that, that to me is like really, really exciting. If you had to pick like the two or three most important questions that we'll get more clarity on in the next, say, two, three years, like what would they be for you? Two questions I, I'm trying to lean into or, or try and understand better is first, how do we continue to make sure that more and more people can participate in the various forms of staking, whether it's liquid staking or running validators or, you know, restaking or any form of participation in these networks. So what I don't want to see is for folks to do less of it. And uh, one of the challenges is when you have an asset and you're presented with you know different opportunities or different places to put that asset because of the yield associated with it or the, the rewards associated with it, the decision can often become a purely financial one. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I want to make sure that we continue to help secure the base layer protocols and make sure that we're not trading off security in these protocols for other opportunities that we may not realize the security effects on the base layer. So that's, that's kind of question one. And question two is mostly around like, as the ecosystem matures, what does, you know, the regulatory landscape around it look like? And, you know, I think there's obviously, I don't think we should get into like, you know, the sort of regulatory discussion today, but I think there's just still a lot of questions around like, you know, because crypto is global, because it transcends borders and it transcends different government entities, there is still like a lot of questions around how does the regulatory landscape look in the sort of participation ecosystem and the staking ecosystem. Those are kind of the two questions that I'm, I'm asking myself. You don't want to spend two hours talking about the <laughs> potential censorship of validators. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> I feel like we could probably spend way more than two hours talking about that. And, you know, one of the things Aaron and I did when we were building Bison Trails was really focus on the distributed nature of our infrastructure platform. We wanted to make sure that it was easy to deploy nodes all over the world. And we you know, integrated lots of different cloud providers. So we weren't reliant on any single cloud provider. We weren't reliant on any single geography. And we wanted to make it so that our customers were able to make those decisions based off their own interests or their own risk profiles. And we kind of stuck to that pretty strictly. And so there's still just like a lot of questions around on the regulatory front. And I think it's up to folks in crypto to help best educate the entire market, the entire ecosystem, including regulators on you know why it's important, what we're doing is important, and how we can make sure that we're enabling innovation and not hindering it. Last question on my end. Bison Trail started as a staking infrastructure company, but I remember during the original pitches, the end vision really was to become the AWS of crypto. 
and provide a, a product for anything that a developer or a user of a blockchain network needed to participate, whether it was staking, building, getting access to data or information, running any kind of nodes for any network. And you can see that vision playing out a little bit with Coinbase Cloud, right? There's new products that aren't necessarily directly staking. How do you feel about this vision playing out? Do you think it's playing out the way you expected it? Like, where do you see Coinbase Cloud as, a, as, as an entity sort of going down the line? Yeah, for sure. And I think you hit the nail on the head. When we started building, when we originally started building the platform, we had this long-term vision of making it incredibly easy to build in the crypto space, build in Web3. And it's obviously an incredibly ambitious vision, right? We wanted to make it so that entrepreneurs and engineers that were building in the space could do that, could build great products without having to worry about every single piece of the infrastructure stack. And this is kind of one of the challenges of crypto, right? If you want like truly decentralized networks, you know, you kind of almost put the burden on every single individual to build every single piece of the stack themselves. And I think that that's actually a pitfall that the space has, you know, slowly but surely started moving away from, which is it's okay to have different parties focusing on different portions of the stack and help build pieces for each other. And so I'm really pumped. I'm really excited about Coinbase Cloud and the future of Coinbase Cloud and what we're, what we've been building. And, you know, we're slowly but surely chipping away at this really ambitious vision of, of making it easier for folks to build in the space. And, you know, like you said, we, we launched our node product. We officially launched it about a month ago. And we've been you know, getting more and more developers on the platform using our APIs. And those APIs are providing everything from direct access to the chains themselves to you know, indexed queries across a number of different, different contracts. It's again, getting, kind of getting back to the original, original, original part of this conversation, which was like, we started by wanting to help people do something that was pretty difficult and make it really easy. And we're continuing to do that. And so over time, we're going to continue to build products. We have a, you know, a number of different products at Cloud to make it easier to build in the space. And, you know, honestly, across all of Coinbase as well, right? We have a whole number of products that help folks build in the space, and we're going to continue to do that. And the vision is the more developers and more people building in the space we can get, and, you know, the easier it is for people to build in the space, the better applications we're going to see, the better experiences we're going to see for end users. And that's, you know, that's what we all want, right? We want really, really great experiences that, you know, leverage crypto's tech and, you know, Web3's vision for end users. And we want to make that as simple as possible. So it's kind of fun to, you know, I think you said we're about five years since we started the company. It's quite fun to see the progression from the original, original first product, which was like deploying validator nodes for, you know, a handful of networks to this entire platform where developers can come and we solve a whole bunch of different uh, needs for them. It's been quite cool. Happy to, to end on that note with the conversation coming full circle. And yeah, Joe, really appreciate you taking the time. I think this is going to be a long journey and very excited for what's coming next. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. This is a super fun conversation. And I think like the last thing I'll end on is you sort of nailed it is we just have a tremendous amount of work to do. We still have so much more work to do to make it easier for builders and developers. And we're incredibly excited to be doing that. You know, I feel pretty honored to be able to be in this position to help builders in the space. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Derek.